This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live on a show which we will spend most of um, talking about the conflict in the Middle East and the violence in Israel and Palestine. I'm joined for the evening by Ash Sarkar. Um, Ash, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. Um, coming up later tonight, I'll be talking about the British politicians who've responded to the events in Palestine very badly. Um, we'll be taking a look at some Palestinians who have appeared in the media and told the truth about the situation. And then on a separate story, we're going to discuss Rachel Reeves, who's given her speech at Labour Party conference today. So we'll take you through the important points there. Let's go straight into it. Israel has declared war on Hamas after the group mounted its most deadly attack ever carried out on Israeli territory. And earlier today, Israel's Defence Minister Yoav Gallant announced this. We are imposing a complete siege on Gaza. There will be no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything will be closed. We are fighting against human animals and we are acting accordingly. That's right. Gaza's two million Palestinians who have already lived under a joint Israel-Egypt blockade for the last 16 years are going to be starved of the essentials for life. The intensified siege follows two nights of airstrikes on the Gaza Strip, one of the most densely populated areas on Earth. Rockets pummeled the city, fired from ships in the Mediterranean and fighter jets above. Residential buildings, refugee camps, marketplaces and a mosque have been hit. Destruction has been widespread, with already stretched hospitals caring for over 2,000 injured by rocket fire. Gazan authorities have reported that Israel's bombardment has so far resulted in the deaths of nearly 560 people in Gaza. The United Nations says 120,000 people have been displaced. That followed Israel's Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's warning Gazans to leave the city, threatening to turn it into, quote, rubble. Israel's retaliatory attacks came in the wake of the biggest incursion into Israeli territory by Palestinian fighters in 50 years, resulting in the death of at least 700 people in Israel. The incursion began at daybreak on Saturday when Hamas soldiers broke through the heavily fortified border between Gaza and Israel, entering Israel territory by land, sea and air. The attack began with a barrage of rockets fired across the border. Explosions were reported in major cities, including Tel Aviv, as well as smaller towns along the border. The first soldiers are reported to have crossed the border by paraglider, with this footage released by Hamas at the time of the attack. At least one bulldozer was also used to breach the wall, allowing people to break through the border on foot and motorbike. By 10 a.m., Israel's military confirmed that Palestinian fighters had attacked at least three military installations near Gaza. Hamas fighters also moved through towns close to the border, taking more than 100 hostages. Amongst them are civilians, reportedly including children, as well as soldiers. This footage shows an Israeli family held hostage in their home. <laughs> According to Hamas, many hostages are now being held in Gaza and many more have been killed. 
among the dead are at least 260 people who are attending a music festival close to the Gaza border. In the early hours of Saturday morning, hundreds of festival goers were forced to flee when fighters descended and opened fire. Hostages were also taken from among the crowd. In this footage, Israelis Noah Argamani and Abinatan Orr are seen being taken into custody by Palestinian fighters. This footage shows the aftermath of that assault on the music festival with bullet-ridden and burned-out cars abandoned along the road after the Hamas fighters attacked. According to Hamas, four Israeli captives were killed in Israel's strikes on Gaza. By this morning, Israel had called up 300,000 reservists, with the military declaring that Israel had regained control of all towns along the border with Gaza. But there have been new reports of gunfire in the north of the country, with Israeli forces trying to repel an incursion from Lebanon. Israeli military leaders have described the attack as the country's 9-11 and Western governments have been quick to agree condemning Hamas and expressing unconditional support for Israel. This was US President Joe Biden's message. This morning I spoke with the Israeli PM to express my full support for the people of Israel in the face of an unprecedented and appalling assault by Hamas terrorists. We will remain in close contact over the coming days. The US will continue to stand with the people of Israel. President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, said this, The full scale of the brutality of the Hamas terror attack leaves us breathless. Defenceless people brutally murdered in cold blood on the streets. We stand strong with Israel and its people. Today, the EU and Israeli flags fly side by side. And Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said this, The scenes that we've seen in Israel over the past 36 hours are truly horrifying. I want to express my absolute solidarity for the people of Israel. Now is not a time for equivocation, and I'm unequivocal. Hamas and the people who support Hamas are fully responsible for this appalling act of terror, for the murder of civilians and for the kidnapping of innocent people, including children. I've just spoken with Prime Minister Netanyahu to assure him of the UK's steadfast support as Israel defends itself against these appalling attacks. We will do everything that we can to help. Terrorism will not prevail. So it's a pretty unnuanced stance from Western leaders, but it doesn't necessarily reflect the views of everyone living in those countries. Around the world, there have been marches in solidarity for the plight of the Palestinian people and in anticipation of the further suffering that's likely to come. From New York and San Francisco in the United States to Sydney in Australia and Istanbul in Turkey, people have taken to the streets to rally for the cause of Palestine. Earlier today, I spoke to Yara Harawi, an academic and policy analyst in Jerusalem. I began by asking whether she was surprised Hamas could mount an incursion on this scale. It was very surprising. It was, you know, all in all a massive security and, and military failure for the Israeli regime. You know, we're talking about a regime that's that's very sophisticated in terms of its weaponry, in terms of its surveillance technologies. Um, but not only that, you know, it boasts to have eyes and ears everywhere, especially, you know, spies embedded in Palestinian communities. And whilst a lot of that is true, you know, it's clear that the Israeli regime to a large um extent managed to manages to oppress and dominate Palestinians on the basis of this idea that it's all seeing and all knowing. And I think this this latest uh, operation by Hamas fighters really smashes that idea, completely obliterates it. Um, and what everyone's asking, including Israelis themselves, is, is how could they have planned this and executed this 
in in a highly surveilled open air prison that is Gaza. Um, and, and we know even now, you know, it's very clear that the, the Israelis were completely caught off guard. You know, they were not even in the slightest bit expecting this. Um, and I think it was that element of surprise accompanied with uh, guerrilla tactics that we hadn't seen before is that what has allowed this operation uh, to go on for so long. In the West, the dominant narrative is that this is, you know, barbaric terrorism. And obviously lots of unarmed civilians have been killed, which I mean is 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 awful to witness. What's the what's the response though been from from Palestinians? Is there is there any sort of disgust at what's happened, or is it pretty much all saying this was legitimate resistance and we've been subjugated for way too long? No, I think it's mixed on many fronts, and I, I don't think we can say that all Palestinians feel the same. We're not a homogenous uh, uh, body, um, but I think with any kind of you know operation, um, for many people there is a feeling of of, of dread and, and and deep anxiety because we know that you know there will be reprisals in it, and we've seen already that. The, the Israeli regime's reaction has been brutal. Um, the bombardments of Gaza have, have been indiscriminate. Um, they've been killing hundreds, in several cases, wiping out entire families. Um, but I think it's important as well to remember that, you know, the Palestinian people are people that have nothing left to lose. The worst has already happened and it continues to happen. Um, and I've seen, you know, commentators say, um, how could they do such a thing when they know that the response will be um, uh, brutal, you know, even framing this as uh, an unprovoked attack. But this completely uh, obscures the reality of what Palestinians in Gaza and throughout the rest of colonized Palestine have been living through. But in particular in Gaza, we're talking, you know, over 17 years um, or 16 years of this brutal military siege, which has rendered it essentially in an open air prison. Um, this is a population of, of 2 million people that most of whom are already refugees. Um, and it's, you know, hardly anyone goes in, goes out. Goods and electricity is severely restricted. All of this, um, you know, I'm sure uh, many of your listeners know. Um, and they've been subjected to so many bombardments over the years. Thousands of Palestinians have been killed, hundreds of thousands injured. Um, and so, you know, this, I think for many Palestinians, you know, we're at the end of our tether here. This isn't about armed resistance. You know, Palestinians are not allowed to resist in any way, shape or form. Uh, Palestinians historically and continuously use a whole host of non-armed resistance tactics. The BDS uh, movement, for example, which is successively being criminalized around the Western world, including the UK. Um, let's not forget five years ago, specifically in Gaza, Palestinians marched to the Israeli fence that has, that has caged them in and they demanded their freedom and the right to return to their lands. They were unarmed and they were gunned down in front of the international media for weeks on end. There is just simply no right way for Palestinians to resist Israeli colonial occupation. You know, we're supposed to lie down and quietly be erased from history. You've talked about these attacks, you know, potentially as a sort of an act of desperation. There's nothing left to lose. I mean, is is there any sort of possible future whereby these do lead to some kind of positive outcome somewhere for, for Palestinians? Or, I mean, is this is this sort of a, a hopeless scream of despair? I mean, what's your... What's your sort of take there? I think it's a bit too soon to sort of analyse, um, you know, what the end game really is for this particular operation by Hamas. A huge number of Israelis were taken captive. Um, uh, some have actually been killed in the Israeli bombardments, at least four, I think, now 
but we know from precedents that this can actually be leveraged to release Palestinian political prisoners. Um, so, for example, in 2006, Gilad Shalit, an Israeli soldier, was captured by Hamas, and he was eventually exchanged for, for over a thousand Palestinian political prisoners. We're talking one uh, Israeli captured soldier for a thousand Palestinians. And at the moment, there are four and a half thousand Palestinian political prisoners. So that's definitely one aspect of this, um, that there have been talks uh, about a prison exchange, but it's kind of been um, uh, overwhelmed by the, the, the Israeli bombardment. Um, and I think there's also a territorial aspect. You know, this is the first time in history uh, that any Palestinian group uh, has reclaimed land taken from them in 1948. So even, you know, if it is for a short amount of time, that's quite significant. Um, and I think there's also, you know, a power play um, by Hamas in terms of internal Palestinian politics. But as I said, that you know, the situation is still unfolding. Uh, we're not sure um, what this is going to lead to. There is uh, an all-out siege being imposed on Gaza, uh, an all-out bombardment. And we're, you know, very anxious to see what's going to happen in, in the rest of colonized Palestine. So I think there's still a lot to be said, um, you know, as things unfold. Something that's dominated the debate in 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 Britain and you know I, I assume across the West is sort of this idea of morality and moralizing what's gone on. And I suppose the most obvious take to have if you're sort of on the left is to say, and I think this is probably my position, is to say, you know, resistance, armed resistance is always legitimate for an occupied force, but at the same time, targeting civilians is a war crime. How would you respond to that? How do you think people in in the on the left in the UK should approach what's happened over the past? Few days because I feel like people are sort of struggling as to sort of how to express their solidarity with with Palestinian people without seeming to sort of cheerlead, um, you know, killing lots of people at a music festival. I mean, do you have any sort of thoughts on that? I mean, I think as I said, Palestinians really, whatever resistance they do, it's always going to be criminalized and demonized. So I think we have to reframe um, what we're talking about and always contextualize what we're talking about, in particular when it comes to Gaza. You know, Palestinians in Gaza are living in an open air prison. Um, you know, Palestinians when they when they undertake um, unarmed resistance um, tactics, they're also uh, demonized, criminalized as terrorists, as uh, anti-Semites. So, you know, I think that we have to take a really long, hard look and and think about the framing of these things. There is obvious, you know, anti-Palestinianism at work. Um, we're seeing that in the the Western media narrative, how they're talking about. All of this, there is a complete lack of context. You know, it's as if Palestinians out of nowhere, you know, have a, 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 have this bloodthirsty appetite. There's no discussion of colonization, of military occupation. This was not an unprovoked attack. You know, I think that's crucial that we talk about that. There's nothing unprovoked in the situation when you have, you know, people under colonial occupation uh, for decades um, under uh, and in Gaza under a military siege. Um, and I think that context is incredibly uh, important when when talking about what's going on right now. I don't want to ask you to sort of predict the future, but I mean, do you have any idea or sort of any any sense of how far the Israelis might go in their reprisals and what that might look like? I mean, we're going to see significant bombing of, of Gaza. We already have. Um, will there be a ground invasion? And then there's also the question of how might this impact Palestinians in in the occupied West Bank or in East Jerusalem? Well, I'm not sure if you can tell, but I'm incredibly uh, anxious and stressed because I think, you know, it's going to get really, really bad. Um, we're not sure uh, exactly 
what lies in store for Palestinians in Gaza and also in the West Bank. But we know it's going to be bad. You know, the Israeli defense minister um, has already stated that they've they've imposed a complete siege on Gaza, meaning that they've cut off the, the power supply, the water supply, no food is going in whatsoever. Um, and these are people that are in an open air prison. They have nowhere to go. Um, in the West Bank, the situation is incredibly tense. Um, people are, are panic buying food. Um, they've closed all the checkpoints. Um, and need I remind you that, you know, the West Bank is divided up into all these areas that are basically um, can be closed off by the Israeli army uh, at any point in time. And that's what they've done. And um, there are settlers on, on the roads shooting Palestinians. Um, there have been several Palestinians already killed in the West Bank. And of course, there is no uh, mention of that. Um, so there's very little movement right now. And Palestinians are very uh, scared and, and very anxious. I'd like to get you to talk about the the international response, because, I mean, from the EU, from the United States, from the UK, we've basically seen, you know, suggestions of unconditional solidarity for, for Israel. Israel has a right to defend herself, in the words of Keir Starmer, sort of gendering Israel for some strange reason. And we've also got sort of Israeli flags being um, projected onto public buildings across much of Europe. British public buildings have been encouraged to raise the Israeli flag. I mean, how would you respond to those sort of expressions of uh, of solidarity with with Israel? If I'm very honest with you, it's disgusting, but not off-brand at all. You know, the British government has consistently been an ally to the Israeli regime and its colonization of Palestine right from the very beginning. And I'm afraid across the, the political spectrum, the Labour Party was historically the most avid supporter of the Zionist project in Palestine. Uh, and certainly today it seems to be living up to that legacy. Um, you know, and essentially, you know, I don't think this is about the UK showing solidarity, I should say the British government showing solidarity with those who have lost loved ones. This is the UK once again, uh, showing where it stands uh, in a situation of colonisation and apartheid. And once again, it's falling on the wrong side of history. So I think there's, you know, no surprise there whatsoever. But it's it's quite phenomenal how brazen it is, the double standards and the, the hypocrisy, you know, not long ago, we were seeing the Ukrainian flag being flown all over the place, all over social media, on, on, on British government buildings, um, in support uh, of a people resisting uh, colonial, uh, resisting occupation. Um, and now we have, you know, the roles re reversed completely, uh, where the British government is supporting a coloniser and an occupier. But again, as I said, you know, this is not off-brand. And since we recorded that interview, Axios has reported that Netanyahu spoke to Joe Biden on Sunday, and Netanyahu reportedly told Biden that Israel has to go into Gaza. Now, that news is based on free Israeli and US sources briefed on the call and suggests a ground invasion could be imminent. Ash, a um, really interesting interview there. I suppose I wanted to talk to you about to this, about sort of how the left and how people are responding to the scenes we've we've seen this this weekend because of course there is a groundswell of support for the Palestinian cause which I absolutely share and I mean as I said in that interview I do think there is a, a right of those living under occupation to resist occupation which is often completely overlooked in terms of sort of mainstream coverage of this it just seems like it's just an unprovoked attack is what we keep hearing of course this is not an unprovoked attack at the same time um, it does seem like lots of civilians have have been targeted and have been killed in a pretty horrific way. So, I mean, where do you, not where do you stand on this, but how do you approach this issue, let's say? I mean, the way I try and approach this issue is to integrate 
both my human empathetic responses and my political responses, because sometimes we try and separate these things and we try and say, as a human being, I feel for victims of violence, but hardline political response over here. Whereas actually you really have to try and draw these things together because what the Israeli state has done is by pursuing the policies of illegal occupation of Palestinian lands, effective apartheid being practiced against Palestinian people, and the war defense, the, you know, penning in uh, and the consistent habitual bombardment of Gaza is that the Israeli state has made it impossible for its own citizens to live in any real kind of safety. Because while I certainly agree with people who say that attacks on civilians of the kind that we've seen over the weekend, of course they constitute war crimes. The individuals and organizations who carried out those attacks are responsible for those war crimes. But violence was made inevitable by the policies that have been pursued over decades by the Israeli state. And these are ones which have been exacerbated and made more more acute in recent years. We've seen an escalation of Israeli settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. Uh, This is something which has been aided and abetted by security forces. You've got children who are regularly arrested and incarcerated denied their legal rights as children. You've seen further building and encroachment of illegal settlements onto Palestinian land. You have ongoing occupation, the indignities and the violence that that involves. And you also have a policy which has been pursued by successive Israeli governments um, to make Gaza as unlivable as possible. This is something which is also very often ignored in this coverage, which is that it has been Israeli state policy for many decades now to view Hamas as a more desirable leadership in the Gaza Strip than secular alternatives, because it makes things worse for Palestinians there. There was a project to undermine, to dismantle, and to assassinate the leadership of uh, the PLO, of course, the, the precursor to Fatah. So it's a much more complicated picture than what we're getting in the press. And I understand why people are reluctant to, to I think, look in an you know honest and unflinching way at the the horrific violence visited upon Israeli civilians this weekend. And I get that people don't want to do that because they feel that it's it's selling out the Palestinian cause in some way. But I don't think it is selling out the Palestinian cause or undermining the the importance of unconditional solidarity of the Palestinian people resisting an an illegal occupation to say that this suffering is absolutely dreadful and it is directly the consequence of Israeli state policy. Next story, of course, very much related. Collective punishment is a war crime, but Britain's foreign secretary seems to be fine with that. In terms of the Israeli response, do you think it is proportionate for Israel to cut off 
water, electricity, food, fuel, all of those things to the people of Gaza. Israel has a right to defend itself against uh, attack. The UK completely supports Israel's right to defend itself proportionately. The truth of the matter is that this was a terrorist attack perpetrated by Hamas, who are embedded in Gaza, shielding themselves amongst the Palestinian people uh, in Gaza. Uh, and we will continue to support Israel as it seeks to defend itself against this brutal terrorist attack initiated by Hamas. That is completely shocking, right? It's not ambiguous. If you've got two million people in an area which they can't leave, and you say you're going to block food, electricity, right? The very basics that people need to live. If you're going to have a siege. This is like a, like, it's like a medieval siege, right? Nothing can go in. No, none of the things necessary for life to cook can go in. That is the definition of collective punishment. And a foreign secretary is asked about that, and his answer is, we give our support to Israel, right? And the answer to that is not difficult. You can say, of course, we understand that Israel think they need to, or you know, you can say Israel have a right to seek out the people who have killed their civilians, Right. If you, I know there is an argument that actually, if you're an occupying force, you don't have a right to self-defense. But I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't be shocked, right, to see a politician make that argument. That's sort of in their strategic, or in you know, in the in the, in the matrix of their alliances. That's what you'd expect them to say. But you could say, but the Israeli government should also um, make sure that it respects international law. You know, this has to be proportionate, and we are against collective punishment. But no, James Cleverly, the UK's foreign secretary, when asked about a siege on, on 2 million people. They haven't been ambiguous, called them animals, by the way. You know, the Israeli defense minister called them animals and said, we're not going to let food or electricity in. Now that is, I'm blown away. I'm blown away by how inhumane the, the British political class has come on this issue. And unfortunately, labor isn't much different. So they've had um, zero role in providing any pushback to the government on this. This is how Keir Starmer responded to the horrific violence that's broken out in Israel-Palestine. This is an appalling attack on Israel, a terrorist attack, for which there is no justification, and Israel has every right to defend herself. And the perpetrators of this have deliberately pushed back the prospect of peace agreements, peace talks and so an appalling act of terrorism and I think everybody is shocked. I spoke to my counterpart, the leader of the Israeli Labour Party last night um, and heard for myself the anxiety, the concern. As we were on the phone the siren went off and she had to go down into the shelter taking her papers with her. So it's an appalling act of terrorism. It needs to be called out across the world. You know, it's a focus group dancer, right? You've got a really serious issue here. You've got a really, really deadly serious issue here. And he is just saying what he thinks, you know, his, his swing voters want to hear. Because that was complete nonsense. Anyone who has any expertise in the region would not say that. There are no peace talks between Israel and the Palestinians, right? Israel has the most far-right government in its history. It actively talks about annexing um, those places. And you know, the way it talks about Palestinians is horrific. It's expanding settlements constantly in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. That's in contravention of international law. They're not interested in peace talks, and Israel hasn't been interested in peace talks for over, over two decades, right? So to say, oh, this will get in the way of peace talks, you're talking complete nonsense. Right? Next, he said, Israel has the right to defend herself, which is weird. Why are we referring to Israel as a woman now anyway? Her, defend herself. Like, 
who talks like that? Either way, the statement doesn't make much sense once you recognize Israel is an occupying power, right? And it's outright dangerous in a context where the Israeli government is telling 2 million Palestinians to leave their homes before they level them to the ground, right? They have a right to defend themselves. You're not going to add a qualification there? They have a right to defend themselves so long as they comply with international law. No, 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 just carte blanche. They have a right to defend themselves. How do you think Netanyahu is going to interpret that? Finally, let's address what it means to call this an attack of terrorism. Now, this is the most difficult part of, of Starmer's answer to criticize, as there clearly was the indiscriminate targeting of civilians by Hamas. However, the former director of Human Rights Watch makes a good point as to why the term is unhelpful. It is not helpful to use the term terrorism in a war when the White House only ever applies it to one side. Better to remind both Hamas and the Israeli government that humanitarian law makes it a war crime to target or indiscriminately fire on civilians. This Red Cross statement does a better job than the White House by applying international humanitarian law to all sides rather than using a concept like terrorism that the White House applies only to Hamas and leaves the Israeli military unrestrained. So using that word terrorism, saying these are the terrorists, this is the legitimate state, is basically saying this legitimate state can do whatever it wants. The terrorists, of course, terrorists don't have rights. Okay, so it's, it's framing this as, as two conflicting you know, armies, essentially, who have to follow international law is a much fairer and more productive way of talking about this and saying there's a terrorist, there's terrorism, there's a state. Um, Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves was also asked about the conflict. Let's see if she was any more balanced than Starmer. There are some here. There are certainly people outside this conference at the conference down the road, so-called World Transform Conference of the Left, who will say, look, we all know the real problem here. The real cause, they say, is the occupation of what they call Palestine. Well, Gaza is not occupied by Israel. The real cause of what is happening now is a terrorist attack. Let's just take a moment there to actually talk about what Nick Robinson said in his question. What they call Palestine. The people at the World Transforms protesting about the occupation of what they call Palestine. But we now even, even the existence of Palestine is now in, date, in doubt, sorry. It's just left, radical leftists. What do they mean, Palestine? Where the hell is Palestine? Right, that's a very worrying statement from a host of, Radio 4's flagship show. Um, let's move on to Rachel Reeves. So a couple of claims were made there. She said, Gaza is not occupied. Now, that's what the Israeli government will tell you and their cheerleaders. There is no formal occupation of Gaza. There is a formal occupation of the West Bank, but not of Gaza. That doesn't, however, mean Gaza is not occupied. Now, this is from NBC News, they're not a bastion of radical leftism. Despite pleas from the United Nations and human rights groups, Israel has maintained a land, air and sea blockade on Gaza since 2007 that has had a devastating effect on Palestinian civilians. The International Committee of the Red Cross considers the blockade illegal and says it violates the Geneva Convention, a charge Israeli officials deny. The UN, various human rights groups and legal scholars citing the blockade consider Gaza to still be under military occupation by Israel. So on the one side, you've got the Israeli government saying, oh no, we left Gaza. Nothing, we're, not, we're not occupying Gaza. On the other side, you've got the UN saying, no, you are occupying Gaza. Right? You might not have your military officials within its border, but if you control what goes in, if you control what comes out, if everything that happens in Gaza has to happen by your permission, then you are de facto occupying, you are an occupying power. Right? So Rachel is, oh, it's not occupied. Like In this sort of like, oh, smart-ass way. It is. Uh, Rachel Rees also says the real cause of what's happening now is a terrorist attack. Now, I've already referred you to Kenneth Roth's opinion on whether terrorism is a useful word here. But the bigger demand Reeves is making there is to say, do not put this violence in context. Do not look at the background injustice here. 
Now, I can see why that Manichaean view of the world might be attractive to a politician. It actually reminds me of George W. Bush. It's also incredibly cowardly. For a braver response to the weekend's violence, we can look to the editorial board of Haaretz. Now, that's Israel's main liberal newspaper. Um, so they wrote this. The disaster that befell Israel on the holiday of Simchat Torah is the clear responsibility of one person, Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister who has prided himself on his vast political experience and irreplaceable wisdom in security matters, completely failed to identify the dangers he was consciously leading into Israel when establishing a government of annexation and dispossession when appointing Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gavir to key positions while embracing a foreign policy that openly ignored the existence and rights of Palestinians. Ash, I want your thoughts on this. I know that British politicians are, on, on some level, going to side with Israel. Right? Israel is an ally of Britain. But just the cross-party dishonesty when discussing this, I do find quite disgusting. Well, I think you've got two major factors at play here. One is you've got anti-Palestinian racism, which is pervasive and it's seen as totally okay. It's normalized within British political media. And you've also got the way in which this particular conflict, Israel-Palestine, is being viewed through the lens of the need to put the left back in its box to attack Jeremy Corbyn and anyone who may be associated with him. I'm going to start first with talking about anti-Palestinian racism. So yesterday I was doing Radio 4 and before my section, which was a paper review, uh, there was an interview with an opposition MP, a member of the Knesset who's part of the uh, National Unity Party. She was being interviewed live from Israel. And as you would expect, she was very upset about uh, what had happened, the dramatic loss of life. And I think that there was a correct decision on the part of the BBC presenter to be very sensitive to that. But what I thought was utterly unacceptable was that what I thought was absolutely disgusting anti-Palestinian racism went completely uncommented on. So she was saying things like, Gaza is independent, Gaza has been left alone to develop. They could have turned it into a little Singapore, but they haven't. And what was being alleged is that Palestinians are so backwards, they're so consumed by anti-Semitism that they don't want to develop their own land. They don't want to make a success of themselves. They would rather do harm to themselves if it means doing harm to Israel and to Jewish people. Now, that was a complete pack of lies from start to finish. I mean, you can't have a little Singapore if you're being bombed every couple of years by a much more powerful army. You can't have a little Singapore if you're suffering under the conditions of a blockade imposed by land, sea, and air. You can't have a little Singapore where another state, a hostile state, has control over your borders, who comes in and who comes out. But this is something which goes completely uncommented on. Once more on Radio 4, I heard someone saying they, and it was unclear to me whether they were talking about residents of the Gaza Strip or Palestinians as a whole, they hate Jews and they hate Israel more than they love their own children. Now, I think that that 
sort of demonization, the sense of a people who are completely crazed by bloodlust and all they want to do is attack Israel is a profound and deep form of racism, but is a form of racism that has become normalized. And it is that precise racism which allows the logic of collective punishment, saying these are animal people, these are beasts, and that's why we're going to stop fuel, electricity, and food going into Gaza Strip. That's what undergirds the acceptability of that proposition to British politicians, including the Conservative Party, and unfortunately, the Labour Party as well. But what you saw, I thought, with that that Radio 4 moment, and I think also why Kistama and Rachel Reeves are, are happy to talk absolute nonsense, you know, really perpetuates some quite nasty anti-Palestinian uh, rhetoric, is because they see it as part of distancing themselves from the left, right? So only the left down at that world transformed to acknowledge the existence of Palestine. It's not the UN. It's not, uh, you know, international observers. It's not Human Rights Watch. It's not amnesty. Um, it's a way of, of, of belittling and, and demeaning all global politics by viewing it through the lens of Jeremy Corbyn. And if it wasn't so serious, what was going on right now, you would laugh and you would call it pathetic, but it's not funny, really. It's poisoning our public conversation because these people can't get over the fact that a socialist was made Labour leader and that it took all of their best combined efforts from the right wing of the Labour Party to most of the mainstream media to take him down. And that's how they're understanding and, and responding to emerging global events. And it really does us, the public, a disservice. It does more than anything, does the people of Palestine a disservice. Mainstream media in Britain right? if, isn't if, meant if, if to keep Starmer, us If that informed. is the reason, and Keir it Starmer about and Rachel Reeves are willing to lie useful context. about the occupation more not, it exists of, 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 of Gaza and the because they think it distances themselves from Jeremy Corbyn. But we say, fuck that. You funders, listeners like you who have chosen to back independent, truthful media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. Let's go to our next story. In the context of brutal violence in the Middle East, both from Hamas and the Israeli army, Western journalists and politicians are trying to airbrush out the occupation as its ultimate cause. Speaking to Rachel Johnson on LBC, Mohammed Al-Kurd pushed back against that framing. We have seen a situation of lose-lose, which has been obtaining for far too long, for decades, really since the inception of the State of Israel. Let's start here. Let's start here. It's certainly not a lose-lose situation. There is one population that lives under a system which has been deemed by many, many global human rights organizations as a system of apartheid. It is not a win-win. There's a population that lives inside a cage without citizenship, without right to movement, without access to clean water. And there's a, and there's a population that enjoys its full rights. I mean, if, you, if, if your major concern is that they have some 
bits of anxiety and some bits of anxiety here and there when when Hamas no, fired. I think you are minimizing. Way, you're minimizing the exper- the Israeli experience. No, no, I, in the think last you're min- I think you're minimizing. I think you're when you compare an occupied population, a population that has been ethnically cleansed, a population that lives under a system of apartheid, to a population that is afraid of the population that is occupying. You are minimizing, not me. I mean, that was really well put, right? And it's important to say, look, it's it's perfectly normal and right, I think, you know, to have sympathy with people who are worried that their their loved ones might have um, been killed over the past 36 hours, right? I assume Rachel Johnson was talking about the wider anxiety that people feel. But that doesn't compare. It doesn't compare to the fact that for decades and decades and decades, people have had no freedom, no sovereignty, that uh, people are killed in Palestine with impunity all the time and the world doesn't sort of light up the Palestinian flag on public buildings. So this idea that, yeah, this is just, again, she was also putting forward this thing. It's, it's, it's too lose-lose. You know, it's, it's, it's hard for Israel. It's hard for Palestine. Why can't you just agree to get along? You know, it ignores the fact that this is uh, a relationship of occupier and occupied. It's not just there's two ethnic groups and they can't get along. It's there is a 56-year-long occupation of Palestine, right? Now, if you're a one-stater, you'll say there's a 70-year occupation of Palestine because you'll say Israel itself has no right to exist. I sit on the fence when it comes to this, um, but I think everyone agrees um, that the occupation of, of the West Bank is illegal, um, always has been, and it has been going on for more than 50 years. Um, of course, that framing isn't surprising when it comes from Rachel Johnson. She is the sister of Boris Johnson. Um, surely the BBC, though, bastion of neutrality, would do better. Um, that's not what Palestinian ambassador to the UK, Hussam Zomluk, found when he appeared on BBC News. You just condemned Israel for killing civilians, and you won't condemn Hamas for killing civilians. How many times you have interviewed Israeli officials, Louise? Hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. How many times Israel have committed war crimes right live on your own cameras? Do you start by asking them to condemn themselves? Have you? You don't. You don't. No, no, I'll answer that question. You don't. You know why I refuse to answer this question? Because I, I refuse the premise of it. Because at the very heart of it is misrepresentation of the whole thing. Because it's the Palestinians that are always expected to condemn themselves. I mean, come on, this is a political conflict. We have been denied our rights for a long time. So this is the wrong starting point. The right starting point is to focus on the root causes, is to try and get out of this extreme dark tunnel, as opposed to this business how, by how, BBC how and the mainstream media for, for 75 years. You, you bring us here whenever there are Israelis who are killed. Did you bring me here when many Palestinians in the West Bank, more than 200 uh, over the last few months? Do you invite me when there is such Israeli provocations in Jerusalem and elsewhere? Because Israel, what Israelis have seen, which we started by saying tragic, the last 48 hours, the Palestinians see every day for the last 70, uh, 50, 50 years. You know the situation in Gaza, you've just described it. This is the biggest open air presence. Those people, 2 million, have been taken hostage by Israel for the last 16 years. So I'm saying this just to say, Louise, perhaps this is about time we abandon this, this rhetoric, very dangerous, this framework, and we start giving people the real ugly truth sometimes. That was Hassan Zomlot. Now, after giving that interview, he's spoken to the world transformed and he said that six of his family members have been killed in raids on Gaza. So, you know, just so awful to be in that situation. And it is the case that it, it, it is always representatives of the Palestinians who are asked to condemn things way more than representatives of the Israelis, even though the Israelis are the occupier. Let's go to one more clip. On, the, on his CNN show, host Fareed Zakaria conducted a long interview with Mustafa Barghouti. 
Um, he's leader of the Palestinian National Initiative. Now, Barghouti was allowed to put the Palestinian perspective for nearly 10 minutes, ending with this. We have lived all our lives under occupation. My father lived under occupation. My daughter is living under occupation. We want a time when we, the Palestinians, will be free. Hamas was not there 30 years ago or 40 years ago. But before that, PLO was described as terrorist. Any Palestinian who struggles for his right or for freedom is described as terrorist. And the question here, do we have the right to struggle for freedom? Do we have the right to struggle for real democracy? Do we have the right to have normal democratic elections, which unfortunately Israel and the United States don't support? I think we are entitled to that. But the unfortunate thing, if we struggle in a military form, we are terrorists. If we struggle in a nonviolent way, we are described as violent. If we even resist with words, we are dis described as provocators. If you support Palestinian and you are a foreigner, they describe you as anti-Semite. And if you are a Jewish person, and there are many of those who support Palestinian cause, they call him self-hating Jew. This should end. It doesn't make sense. We should all have equal life. We should all have peace. We should all have justice. And we should all live in dignity. The main way to achieve that is to end occupation, end the system of apartheid that I am sure no Jewish person can be proud of. Time has come for that. And time has come for justice and freedom. If we achieve that, there will be no violence and nobody will be hurt. So that interview has been seen millions of times on, on, on Twitter. Now, I have to say, Ash, I found the media coverage of this, you know, it hasn't been balanced, but it's been more balanced than I've expected. And it's been a hell of a lot better than what we've been hearing from our politicians. I think there's a big difference as well here between people who are there, people who are in Palestine who have reported on the ground there. And then you've got sort of the, the commentators based in, in London. I saw Lise Doucette on the BBC who was sort of speaking. She's their international correspondent. And she was sort of saying, you know, she was she's speaking to people in Gaza or speaking to people in Palestine. I'm not precisely sure what part. Um, and she was saying, they're saying, we're completely desperate. What else can we do? Right. And you often do have some journalists who have knowledge on the ground being quite open-minded in terms of what's going on here but then you have sort of the politicians and you have the the comment editors and you have the people who do the headlines who are really really strict by just saying no terrorism good guys bad guys um but you know of course the palestinians who have sort of been giving interviews to mainstream media have you know a, a, as they have been in every time this this issue flares up in the past few years have been doing a, a phenomenal job i suppose i want your views on sort of how the media has been been covering this over the past three days well i think the the simple fact of representing Palestinian voices in British and American media has changed an awful lot in the past 10, 15 years. I mean, once upon a time, you would just never hear from Palestinians, whereas now I think there is at least a bit of understanding amongst editors and producers that you need Palestinian voices to comment on these events the same way, well, not the same way, because of course they're held to a completely different standard, but it would be a notable absence if you only had Israeli or pro-Israel voices. So I think there has been some efforts to, to you know, reach out and include some degree of Palestinian representation. But I was talking to Mohammed Al-Kurd about this on Downstream not that long ago. And one of the things that he said he felt intensely frustrated by is that he's always asked to do the exact same thing when he's asked to do media about Palestine. He's asked either to condemn violence or to prove that he's not anti-Semitic 
or he's asked to sort of do this performative suffering. He described it as showing our bruises, you know, showing our bruises, showing how we suffer, sort of becoming a bit of like a spectacle of pain. And what's missing from that is the political struggle that's going on. You're only allowed to be a perfect victim of violence. And of course, a perfect victim never struggles, never resists, never fights back, never tries to change their circumstances from a position of subjection to one of parity. And I think that this is why, just reflecting on our earlier conversation about how should we as left-wing people, as people who are horrified by violence against civilians and recognize that the civilians who have suffered the most from this ongoing, shouldn't even say conflict, but ongoing illegal occupation has been the Palestinians. How do you how do you even begin to understand this? I think that this is where you also have to remember what the nature of people's struggles for freedom, what that's been like. If you look at the armed wing of the ANC and the struggle against apartheid in South Africa to the activities of the FLN in Algeria when Algeria was under French colonization. There were things that were done that I don't think any of us would be comfortable with and would certainly be uh, against international law. Now, that's not to say well, because it happened in these struggles and these struggles won, it means that absolutely everything is morally justified. But that gives you an understanding about how you end up in an escalating cycle of violence, which is driven predominantly by the most powerful actor, i.e. the occupier, i.e. the apartheid state. And that's the kind of thing which Palestinians very rarely get the opportunity to say, or if they do, they're suddenly put back in that box of terrorist Hamas supporter, why won't you condemn? Because the best that they can hope for within this very limited media script is to be the perfect victim. As And as Mohammed Elkerd, uh, you know, talked to me about, that is, that's not a good place to be. It's not a powerful place to be. Our final story on something a little bit different. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves has given her speech to Labour conference in Liverpool, speaking to a packed out hall. She has promised that the party will fight the next election on the economy. Um, she also pitched herself as more qualified to manage the economy than the Tories, and she focused on growth and security in a changing world. She said this. A change world demands a new business model for Britain. It is an approach that I call Securonomics. That means government putting economic security first. Security for family finances and security for our national economy. It means we must rebuild our ability to do, make and sell more here in Britain. So we are less exposed to global shocks. Governments around the world have come to understand this in a way that our governments cannot. That wealth does not just trickle down from a few at the top, but rests on the contribution of the many. On the skill and dedication of those who work in our everyday economy. Care workers, postal workers, supermarket workers, and on entrepreneurs, innovators and scientists. Growth from the bottom up and the middle out. An economy rebuilt in the interests of working people.
because from security comes hope. Labour will commit itself to rebuilding that security, to restoring that hope. Labour is ready to serve, ready to lead, ready to rebuild Britain. That's a reasonably stirring message. Of course, you need money to rebuild Britain, so you could do with taxing or borrowing, but there we are. Um, as for the details, Reeves reaffirmed Labour's commitment to charge VAT on private school fees, and she said that Labour would tax tech giants to support high street shops. Reeves also declared a war on waste, um, which on the face of it sounds a bit like a Tory policy, um, except she wasn't talking about cutting civil servants and frontline public sector workers. Instead, she vowed a crackdown on the use of private jets by ministers and said that Labour would halve the number of management consultants employed by the government. On the theme of waste again, she also promised this. The costs to the taxpayer of COVID fraud is estimated at £7.2 billion with every single one of those cheques signed by Rishi Sunak as Chancellor. And yet just 2% of all fraudulent COVID grants have been recovered. So I can announce today that we will appoint a COVID corruption commissioner supported, <laughs> supported by a hit squad of investigators equipped with the powers they need and the mandate to do whatever it takes to claw back the money that has ripped off the taxpayer, to take the fraudsters to court and to get back every penny of taxpayers' money that they can. As a smart political move, I have to say. Um, other promises included unblocking the planning system to allow more house building, as well as increasing government support for energy infrastructure and manufacturing-funded by private investment, but there were some traditional Labour messages too. It was the last Labour government which finally delivered on the promise of Keir Hardy to implement a national minimum wage. The fight against poverty has always been at the very heart of our movement, and so the next Labour government will go further. Not a rebrand of the minimum wage like the Tories, but for the first time, a minimum wage taking account of the real cost of living Finally, conference with Labour, we will have a genuine living wage. They need to tell us how much it's going to be, of course. Um, reaction to Reeves' speech has been pretty positive so far. And this endorsement by former Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, was played to conference at the end of her speech. Rachel Reeves is a serious economist. She began her career at the Bank of England, so she understands the big picture. But crucially, she also understands the economics of work, of place and a family. It's beyond time to put her ideas and energy into action. Mark Carney was headhunted to lead the Bank of England by George Osborne. Um, so that might seem a bit of a coup for Rachel Reeves, among some quarters at least, among the business community perhaps. Um, her opposite number could only manage a worn-out response. Though Jeremy Hunt responded to Reeves' speech like this. Oops, when the biggest single issue for the economy is inflation, it doesn't get one mention from the Shadow Chancellor because adding £28 billion a year to borrowing will push it up, meaning higher mortgages, higher debt, interest and lower growth. Ash. Were you inspired by Rachel Reeves' speech? Oh my God, yes, Michael. That was the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. When she talked about clawing back that 7.2 billion, I mean, really. With a hit squad. Um, the hit squad. I mean, look, I know that that's a strong political move in terms of it highlights a real weakness of the Conservative government, the way it's presided over corruption and that Rishi Sunak going from Chancellor of the Exchequer to Prime Minister has been a huge part of that. 
But in terms of what this means for the country in policy terms, it is the very definition of tinkering. So you had increased health spending, which is coming from closing the tax loopholes for non-DOMs. Now, obviously, I'm all for that. But you don't have that much that's particularly ambitious when it comes to the realm of taxation. Why? Because Labour are very, very keen not to be seen as a party of high tax, even if you're shifting the burden of tax away from things like income and more towards things like capital gains tax or uh, estate taxes, inheritance taxes. Um, these things which, which disproportionately target the wealthy rather than the pay packets of workers. Um, so then what you end up with are these things which are kind of a bit gimmicky, I have to say. This, you know, COVID corruption task force commission hit squad money assassins. I don't know. Um, it is gimmicky because you're not going to get that 7.2 billion back. And even if you did, that's 7.2 billion for what one one financial year. Um, it's not the same as the kind of consistent income you can get for the Treasury from changing where the tax burden in the society falls. Um, but that's not something that she or Labour really want to touch. The two areas where they're willing to do that have been with non-DOM tax loopholes, which I agree, need doing, and with a windfall tax where they seem to have spent that about 10 times over because that's the only tax that they think is uh, uncontroversial enough to squeak past the Daily Mail. They don't want to raise much money, just small enough amounts of money that no one really complains, um, which is going to be a concern. Um, there was actually some interesting parts in Keir Starmer's interview um, on the weekend with Victoria Derbyshire, where basically she was saying, well, well if you don't get the growth you're promising, um, how are you going to fund public services? And like, we will get the growth we're promising. And she's like, well, how? It's like, we will get the growth. It's very, it wasn't reassuring, let's say. Um, thank you, Ash, for joining me tonight. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And just to say one more time, if you're interested in learning more about the Palestinian perspective of what it's like to live under decades of occupation, to live under the shadow of ethnic cleansing, please do watch the interview that we did okay. with Mohammed El-Kurd. There's an awful lot in there. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. This show will be back tomorrow. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.